I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Eight-year-old Joey was asked what he learned in Sunday school that day, and he said, Mom, it was great. God sent Moses behind enemy, enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And when he got them to the Red Sea, he had his engineers build a pontoon bridge, and all the people walked across safely. And then he used his walkie-talkie, and he called back to headquarters, and he brought in the bombers. And when the Egyptian army was on the pontoon, they blew it up. Mom stopped him and said, Now, Joey, is that really what your teacher taught you? He said, Well, no, but if I told you what the teacher said, you'd never believe it. Well, believe it or not, here's how it happened. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 29 says, By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Now we're all familiar with this event, but I want us to go back this morning to Exodus chapters 12 to 14 and just pick out some of the details that took place at that time. Last week, we saw how God set Israel free from slavery in Egypt through the Passover. In these chapters, I want us to mark some of the things that happened to them immediately afterwards, culminating in His turning an obstacle into a pathway. Egypt in the Bible is a picture to us of the world. And so I think there are some practical lessons for each one of us because God has delivered us from slavery and sin in the world. And when we come out of that slavery, there are certain things that happen to Israel that I think you will find happens in the Christian life as well. Ultimately culminating in turning an obstacle into a pathway. I've picked out six things in Exodus chapter 12 to 14. Six principles. The first principle is that God provides all you need for the journey. Look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 30. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where, where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, Get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. And then verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. Verse 35, now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they had let them have their request. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. So as they were leaving Egypt, they had nothing to show for all their years of labor. And yet God provided for them 
Because God told Moses to tell them to ask the children of Israel for gold and silver and clothing. And they gave them all these things. And so as they left Egypt, it looked as if they had plundered the people of Egypt. You know what? When you come out of slavery into freedom in Jesus Christ, one of the things that God does for you is He stockpiles you with all that you need. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 where it says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now what is a spiritual blessing? Well, that's a blessing that the Spirit of God gives. And so if you are a Christian, you have every blessing that the Spirit of God can give. Now, how many blessings do you think the Spirit of God can give? Well, whatever your answer is, you've got them. When it comes to spiritual blessings, it looks like we have plundered the wealth. In fact, I find as Christians, we oftentimes ask God for things we've already got. You ever notice that? Sometimes we pray and we say, Lord, I need more love. Please give me some love. You know what the Bible says? Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Sometimes we say, Lord, give me peace. I'm so distressed. You know what? You've already got it. Jesus said in John 14, 27, My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Sometimes we say, Lord, give me some joy. I'm so unhappy. You know what? You've already got it. In John chapter 15, Jesus said that His joy is in us so that our joy may be filled full. You say, Lord, give me more strength. I'm so weak. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When it comes to riches, when it comes to spiritual blessings, we have plundered the wealth. In fact, 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need to live life to its fullest and everything you need to be godly in character has already been granted to you. Principle number one, God provides all that you need for the journey. Principle number two, God seldom uses shortcuts. Look at Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near, even though it was short. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Now, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you probably have a map of the Exodus. Egypt is here. The promised land is up here. The shortest route to the promised land would be northeast 
along the Mediterranean coast. It's been estimated that if they took that route, it would have been about three weeks long. But God didn't take them that way. And the reason He didn't take them that way is spelled out in our verses. It says because they might encounter conflict and turn back to Egypt. And if you remember, when they did get to the border of the promised land in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 3, and they found out there were giants in the land, you remember what they said? They said, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? God knew exactly what He was doing. When they would encounter conflict, He knew that they would turn back. Now, some of your Bibles say at the end of verse 18, the Israelites went out of Egypt armed for battle. Now, that doesn't mean they were ready to fight. These are a bunch of slaves. These are not military people. That phrase literally means they went out five in a rank. They went out in an orderly fashion like a militia would. In fact, if you take your Bible and look back at chapter 12 and verse 37, it gives us an interesting detail. It says, Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. There were 600,000 men. Now if you add to that 600,000 wives, assuming they only had one each, and then you assume that they had on average three kids per family, and that may be a low number because you remember they were having kids so fast that Pharaoh was having them thrown into the Nile River. But if you put father, mother, and three kids per family, that adds up to three million people. So you've got three million people coming out of Egypt. But they didn't come out in some haphazard, unorganized way. They came out orderly and organized. And they didn't take the shortcut. Now, if we had been planning the trip, we would have taken the shortcut. But I want to tell you something. God seldom takes shortcuts. In fact, instead of going northeast along the coast, right to the promised land, God took them north... How did He take them? Southeast down into the Sinai Peninsula. He almost took them in the opposite direction. I don't know if you're like me, but I like shortcuts. I've got shortcuts all over Cape and Jackson. If you want to know how to get to Paducah, I know a shortcut. If you're going to Gulf Shores, I know a shortcut. I like shortcuts. A couple weeks ago, James Green and I went to Los Angeles and uh, we took a cheap flight with a layover in Dallas that took us to Ontario Airport, which is out east of L.A. because it was cheaper. Well, we got to Dallas and we had about 45-minute layover, so we decided to eat. We got to talking as we were eating and we got back to our flight and, and realized we had missed our flight. It was James' fault. So they told us we would have to wait three hours and 15 minutes for the next flight. Well, I like shortcuts. So it was funny, James sat down with his computer and just relaxed and said, okay, we'll deal with this. And I was walking around trying to figure out. So I went and found out there was a flight in about 45 minutes to Burbank. 
So I asked them, well, how far is Burbank from Ontario? They said about 17 miles. So I said, well, can we get on that flight? And he said, well, it's full, but you can go standby. So we got on the train in, in Dallas and went over there and we stood standby, James and I. And they said, well, it's full, but if, you know, if somebody doesn't show up. So 10 minutes before they take off, they start announcing these two guys' names, just like they had done for us previously. And we're sitting there going, please don't show up. And they didn't show up. And so we got those spots on the plane and we took off and we ended up in Burbank. When we got to Burbank, we found out that Ontario Airport is actually about 60 miles from Burbank. And we had to rent a car. And they said, well, if you rent a car and drive it there, it's going to cost you $97. I said, well, that's ridiculous. And he said, well, if you rent it, and, and drive it there and bring it back here, it's only $35. And I said, well, now let me understand. The name, the name of your company is not local, it's national. But I have to bring the car back. So anyway, to make a long story short, by the time we got to the airport, the plane we would have taken if we had waited was landing <laughs> as we got there. But, but I like shortcuts. <laughs> if I come to a stoplight, you know what? I'll turn right just so I can be moving in case maybe I'll get a shortcut to where I'm going. But you know what? That's also true, I think, of all of us when it comes to our spiritual lives. We all want shortcuts. We want microwave Christianity. We want it quick. We want it now. We want spiritual maturity overnight. But there is no pill that will create spiritual maturity. There is no shortcut to spiritual maturity. God usually takes us the long way to get us where He wants us to be. You see, we would rather take the coastal route. And God says, no, I'm going to take you to the desert. It takes constant, continual, consistent, regular, quiet time in the Word and prayer day after day after day after day. And we wish we could go straight there. In fact, in my experience with God, I find that He leads us on far more detours than shortcuts. Third principle. God guides you step by step, 24 hours a day. Look at Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21. It says the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Now, like a good leader, I'm sure Moses wanted to have a plan. He wanted to know where they were going, how they were going to get there, how long it was going to take, how much it was going to cost them. He would like to know the next 40 steps, but the fact is he didn't even know the next step 
God just said, I'm going to go ahead of you in the pillar. Follow me. Now, we tend to think there were two pillars in the Old Testament. We think there was a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. But the indication in Scripture is that there was just one pillar. In fact, if you look at chapter 14 and verse 24, it says, At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. See, there was just one pillar. In fact, in verse 19, it's referred to the as the pillar of cloud, even though verse 20 tells us it was nighttime. And Psalm 105.39 gives us another detail. It says that the cloud served as a covering for the people. Where are they? They're in the desert. And so the cloud would spread out at the bottom as a covering for them to keep them from getting sunburned by the sun. So the best I can picture this is it was like a column at the top and then it spread out like a cloud. And in the daytime it was a cloud and at night it lit up like fire to light the way for the children of Israel. And this was a, a desert area so they would prefer to travel at night and so it lit their way so they could travel in the cool of the evening. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, you know, I wish I had a pillar of cloud to follow. When it would turn right, I could turn right. When it would turn left, I would turn left. At night, it would light up for me. Well, I wish God would just give me a pillar. It would be so much easier to follow Him. You know what? You have got something far better than that. Just as the Passover lamb we saw last week pictures God the Son. The pillar of cloud and fire pictures God the Holy Spirit. And it's no coincidence that the cloud came after the Passover lamb. First the blood of the Passover lamb was put on the doorpost. Then God gave them the cloud to lead them. And that's the pattern in the New Testament. First comes the cross of Christ. I come to the cross and then He gives me the Spirit of God to lead me through the wilderness. And I love what it says in chapter 13 and verse 22. It says, He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Nehemiah 9.19 says, You in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for the way in which they were to go. I love that. Despite all of Israel's failures, their murmuring, their unbelief, their rebellion, God never withdrew the pillar of cloud. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 16, the Father will give you another comforter that He may be with you forever. God guides you step by step 24 hours a day. Fourth principle, God, God often gives you confusing directions. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back 
and camp before Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal-Zephon, opposite it, by the sea. Now, if you look on your maps, you'll find that there's conflicting opinion on where these various cities were located. But it's apparent to us that God's directions here are confusing. They're perplexing. In fact, if you look at verse 2, notice the phrase, turn back. Israel is traveling in a southeasterly direction. They may not be taking the shortcut to the promised land, but they're certainly getting further and further away from Pharaoh. And God comes to Moses and says, I want you to turn around and I want you to go back. Now this was confusing to Israel. It was not only confusing to Israel, it was also confusing to Pharaoh. Because if you look at verse 3, it says, For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Pharaoh's going to say they were going south. Now they've turned around and they're going north. And then they head over east, right against the Red Sea, and they've, they've encamped themselves right next to the Red Sea so they can no longer go any further east. They have been hemmed in by the desert. Now, why did God give them such confusing directions? Well, we find the answer in verse 4 where it tells us He was using Israel to bait Pharaoh. You see, God was giving them confusing directions because God was setting the stage for a miracle. But Israel couldn't understand that. So as they went south and then turned around and went north and then went toward the Red Sea and were sort of camping by the Red Sea, they were standing around scratching their heads. Have you ever noticed that on our spiritual journey, God often gives us directions that are confusing? God says, if you will give me the first fruits of your money, I'll make what's left over go further than what you would have had before. If you will give me time in the Word and prayer, I'll allow you to accomplish more in the time you have left than you would have if you hadn't. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? There are a lot of paradoxes in Scripture. Jesus said if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. Doesn't make sense, does it? Jesus says, if you want to be exalted, you have to humble yourself. Have you ever been going along in your spiritual life thinking, boy, I'm getting far from the world. I'm making great time. Pharaoh's way back there. Uh, my slave master's way back there and I'm making great time and all of a sudden God turns you back and hems you in and the enemy is bearing down on you and it seems like God has deserted you. Have you ever found yourself asking the question, why doesn't God lead me along the coastal route? Why does He keep taking me to the desert and hemming me in?
Cindy Olson came through liver cancer. The doctor said, it's all gone. We celebrated with her. Then God said, Cindy, I'm going to turn you around. We're going to go back to cancer. That's confusing, isn't it? But that's often the way God works with us. Fifth principle. God will deliver you. Look at Exodus chapter 14 and verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to Me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Now a battle is about to take place, but it's going to be a short battle. Because verse 14 says, the Lord will fight for you. And Israel's part in this battle is encompassed in three exhortations. The first one is, do not fear. And you can see that in verse 13. Moses says to the people, do not fear. Did you hear the story of the 747 jetliner taxiing down the runway with the passengers all buckled up for takeoff? A voice came over the speaker in the plane's cabin and said, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard Flight 22 bound for London's Heathrow Airport. We will climb to a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet and we will travel at an airspeed of 660 miles per hour. Our flight plan will take us across Canada, Greenland, Iceland, and over the tip of Ireland. Our flying time will be about nine hours. As soon as we are airborne, the flight attendants will be serving you breakfast. We will take off just as soon as I can get up the nerve. How would you like to be on that plane? You know, fear plays havoc with our lives. And fear led Israel to do three things on this occasion. Number one was to complain. Look at verse 10 again. The end of verse 10 says, And they became very frightened, so the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, this was not a cry of dependence. This was a cry of complaint. It's kind of like the disciples. Remember when they were in the boat in the storm and they they said to Jesus who was sleeping, do you not care that we are perishing? You see, that was not a prayer. That was a complaint. 
And so the first thing they do out of their fear is that they complain. Second thing they do out of their fear is that they blame. Look at verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now that's a sarcastic statement because there were a lot of graves in Egypt. In fact, that's what the pyramids are. They're just huge graves. And so it's this sarcasm. You've taken us out of the place where they have all the graves in order to die in the wilderness. And so when times got tough and they got fearful, they found fault with the leader. They criticized the leader. And so they complained and they blamed. Thirdly, they forget. How did they get into this predicament? They followed the cloud. They followed the pillar of cloud. and fire. God led them right into the predicament where they are. When you get hemmed in, you don't seem to see a way out. The enemy is bearing down on you. Don't you often forget that God led you into that situation? And so the first exhortation is, do not fear. You know, that's one of the most common exhortations in the Scripture. In Genesis 15.1, God told Abraham, do not fear. In Joshua 8.1, God told Joshua, do not fear. In Judges 16.23, God told Gideon, do not fear. In Daniel 10.12, God told Daniel, do not be afraid. In Luke 12.32, Jesus told the disciples, do not be afraid, little flock. That's a great exhortation, but you know something? If you're really afraid, and I say to you, don't be afraid. If you're really afraid and I say, stop it, does that really work? Well, it doesn't really work unless you understand the person behind the exhortation. That's why David could say in Psalm 23, 4, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Isaiah sums it up this way in Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. If God is going to fight for you, the first step is do not fear. Now let me add a little footnote here. The sea is raging on the east. The armies of Pharaoh are bearing down on the west. Moses stands up in front of the people and he says in verse 13, do not fear. And then Moses goes over behind his tent. He gets down on his knees and he says, Lord, how are we going to get out of this mess? He says, Lord, I'm scared to death. You say, well, where do you see that in the text? Well, I see it in verse 15. Look what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? I think there's a lesson in that. That tells me that leaders are frail too. That tells me that preachers need to hear their own message. You see, Moses is more, no more adequate at the Red Sea than he was at the burning bush when he had all the excuses as to why he couldn't serve 
God. And God said, you're my man because you're inadequate. Well, now he stands and gives this bold message. Do not fear. Moses is scared too. And he needs the encouragement of the presence of the Lord as well. And then the second exhortation is to be still. In verse 13, he says, stand by. In verse 14, he says, keep silent. And what he's saying is that if God is going to fight for us, all attempts at self-help must cease. We have to stand still. Does that go against your nature? It goes against my nature. That's why when the, we got, the plane got delayed, I had to be moving. I had to be trying to fix the problem. We think we've got to do something to help God. Jesus said that our anxious efforts can't add one inch to our height or one hour to our life. You look at Israel and you say, what could Israel have done at the Red Sea? Could they dry it up? Could they defeat the Egyptians? No. And if God has allowed you to be hemmed in, your circumstances are no different. You cannot solve the problem. And so in the words of Psalm 46, the Lord is saying, be still and know that I am God. Do not fear. Be still. Third exhortation, go forward. You see it at the end of verse 15? Go forward. Now that doesn't contradict the previous exhortation. After you stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, after you stand still and realize that the Lord will fight for you, then you can go forward. You see, we only step out in faith on the promises of God. It wouldn't have done Israel any good to step out into the Red Sea if God hadn't promised He was going to deliver them. But when God makes that promise, then we step out in faith. Some people have even suggested that the Red Sea didn't open up all the way. That it just opened up partway and they stepped through and as they stepped through, it opened up further and further to bring them through. I can't really defend that from Scripture, but that's really the concept of faith. I, don't, I do know that in Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29, it tells us, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea. And I love what it tells us in chapter 14 and verse 29. It says, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Now, how do you think you would have gone through the Red Sea? I know me. I, I would have started into it, made sure it was safe, and then I would have ran across the Red Sea. This verse tells me they walked across the Red Sea. I think it's verse 22 that says, the water was like walls on both sides. I take that literally. In fact, I picture that like being an aquarium at SeaWorld. So they were walking along, you could see the fish through the sides of the walls of the Red Sea. But I like the fact that they didn't run because faith walks. Let me tell you something. Whatever your Red Sea dilemma is today, 
God will deliver you. Sixth principle. God will frustrate your enemies. You know, the Bible presents Satan as two chief characters. He's a roaring lion and he's a cunning serpent. And we see both approaches in this passage. We see the cunning serpent back in chapter 12 and verse 38. If you go back there, we read verse 37 earlier telling us there were 600,000 men on foot aside from children. Notice what it says in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. A mixed multitude. Who's that? That's Egyptians. So that tells me that when Satan could no longer keep them in Egypt, which he wanted to do, and they got free, what he did was sent some of the Egyptians with them to infiltrate their people. That's the cunning serpent. But then we also see him as a roaring lion. And the roaring lion is when Pharaoh is coming with his armies with power and might intimidating the children of Israel. But notice what God does. Chapter 14 and verse 19 says, The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. The pillar that had been leading Israel through the wilderness now moves behind them between Israel and the Egyptians. And on Egypt's side, it was dark. On Israel's side, it was light. And I think that's a picture to us of the double nature of the glory of God. Or the double nature of the gospel of God. You see, it's the same presence. It's the same message, but some see only darkness and others see the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. Same presence of God, same message of the Gospel. Some people get salvation. Others get judgment. Or as the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, to some, it's an aroma of death. To others, it's an aroma of life. And of course, we all know the rest of the story. The Egyptian army attempted to follow Israel through the Red Sea. Verse 25 says, God confounded the Egyptians by causing their chariot wheels to swerve and bog down. And they recognized that God was fighting against them and they tried to escape. But Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and it closed over the Egyptians and they drowned and their bodies washed up on the seashore. What's the message? No matter how formidable your enemy may seem, no matter how intimidating he may be to you, he is no match for God. And that's why when the children of Israel got to the other side, it tells us in Exodus chapter 15, recording for us the very first song in the Bible that they sang a song of celebration, a song of victory. Let me close with two applications. 
Application number one is a doctrinal application. You see, the Red Sea is the sequel to Passover. It really completes our picture of salvation. On Passover night, we see Israel sheltered by the blood from the judgment of God. At the Red Sea, we see them brought safely through the place of death. Passover pictures the cross. The Red Sea pictures the empty tomb. Passover is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His death. The Red Sea is Jesus conquering death. Passover is Good Friday. The Red Sea is Easter morning. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. But you know, for the believer in Jesus Christ, that order is reversed. Jesus already took our judgment so that when we come to death, the Bible tells us there is no condemnation. Jesus already took our judgment so when we come to death, we get to walk through death on dry ground. That's the doctrinal application. Let me, let me give you a practical application. This account demonstrates to us the absolute sufficiency of our God. You may be sitting here today and you feel like you're hemmed in by the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army charging you on the other side. God says in Isaiah 43 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and God will turn your obstacles into pathways. And you will find yourself standing on the far shore, singing in the words of Exodus 15, I will sing unto the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back and lead us in a praise of celebration this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing together. You may be here today and you'd like someone to pray with you. If you'd like to do that, you can come forward at this time. You can pray right where you stand and, and commit yourself afresh to the Lord. There may be those who want to join this morning. If you've never come to salvation in Jesus Christ, I would love to talk to you about that today. Let's, let's stand as we close our service today and, and sing unto the Lord. Thank <laughs> you.